Hey there. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, welcome. This is the Venice Voice. On this episode of the Venice Voice podcast, it is my pleasure to bring to you a conversation that I had with Marwa Bernstein. That's right, Marwa Bernstein. She is a former professional ballet dancer and currently an actress and super mom and longtime Venice resident. We talk about the importance of art, how she got her name, and we also dip our toes a little bit into some politics, so buckle in for that. But before we begin, I'd like to know what you'd like to hear on this podcast uh, and how I might possibly be able to do a little bit better for you. So shoot me an email at ron at venicevoice.com if you have anything that you'd like to talk about, any issues that I should raise or anything at all. Just send me a note. Once again, that's ron at venicevoice.com. And now, without further ado, here is Marwa Bernstein. Cool. So, yeah, that happens. Marwa Bernstein... Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for coming over. Sure. Yes. Well, you said I could have coffee, so that's a good thing. Coffee is always a good... Pl- it's a, I plied you with coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a little early for us. Yes. You're not a morning person. I'm not a morning person. It's I, I have to get up every morning to take my child to school, but I don't like getting up every morning. I'd rather not. So you're like a joy in the morning. I'm reserved in the morning (laughs) (laughs) and and your child is is lucy yes yeah she's awesome she is i like her a lot do you like her a little bit i do you know (laughs) (laughs) um that's one of the things i wanted to ask you about um if you didn't already know i admire you a lot uh, for many, many reasons, but one is like, you're just like the greatest mom ever. And you've gone through some real, real adversity with Lucy. I mean, tell us what happened with the, with, I know she had some problems with her eye. What, what was the thing? What was the initial diagnosis? Um, she did, but I think honestly that she would be very upset if I talked about it. Really? Yeah. Okay. So I think that, I can talk about the fact that we went through stuff with her and that we're kind of coming to the other side of it. And it's been a challenge, um, but she is doing really well and she's not telling that story. So without asking her, I wouldn't want to necessarily do that. Okay. We're going to have to have her come in and do an interview then. (laughs) That would be fun. That'd be fun. But she's doing well. She's doing really well. Good. Amazingly well. I'm so, I'm so happy to hear that. Things are getting completely back to normal. She just got such a fantastic personality and she's just so uplifting. And, you know, I don't know if I would handle things as good as she has handled just her life in general. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's, if there's a silver lining, it's the fact that, Adversity makes you into an interesting person and allows you to find who you are in that. And she's done that really, really well. And um, she's come out the other side of a difficult situation and made herself into a pretty amazing person. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, it's a testament to you guys, too. Um, and you live here in Venice, and she goes to school here. Well, Where her, does she go to her school? Her school's in Santa Monica. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, we live in Venice. Yeah. And... Um, she just switched to a new school, which is uh, kind of an arts-based school, and she really is just over the moon about it. She's having a really great time. Well, good. Yeah. Did you try to, I mean, as a parent raising children in this part of Los Angeles, was it hard to find a school situation that you were happy with, or was it a process? Or I mean, it's a process, always. You know, she's tried a couple of different schools. Like, most kids, you got to find the right fit. Um it's complicated in Los Angeles because the public school system is really challenged right now. And so um, that was not an option for us to just put her in public school. I I think that the problems going on in public school right now are far too deep. Um, And I think they need to be fixed, but I'm not willing to sacrifice my child to have them be fixed around her, you yeah. know. I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice myself to do it. I'll help wherever I need to. But I, especially given, you know, the last couple of years that she's had, I needed her in a space that is calm and loving and a good learning environment where she can flourish. And unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case in a lot of the public schools. And 
caveat, of course, I'm sure there are wonderful ones. I'm not trying to put them down, but I haven't been able to find a space for her that was that was right. There are some charter schools out there that seem to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, some very good charter schools. Yeah. yeah, so there are options out there. Totally. Um, you guys are just really fortunate to be in a position to be able to send Lucy to places that she can flourish. Which is yeah, there. yeah. Um, and we we also got very lucky that she's a very bright kid and got a scholarship. So Really? Yeah, so otherwise, you know, that would also possibly not be feasible, but because of who she is and because of um, all of her talents, you know, that was that She's was so something. awesome. She is. She's really great. <laughs> uh, man, she's just a good kid. Um, you're just a fascinating person. Marwa Bernstein. Where, where does Marwa Bernstein come from? I know that I've asked you this before. It's such a unique <laughs> name. Where does this, what happened? Um, the, well, the, 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 the honest story is that my parents, um, my father was a journalist. My parents had just gotten married and were in Cairo because um, he was working there. And um, I was conceived in Cairo. So when they realized that they were pregnant with me, they wanted a name that was a connection to that. Um, and my dad had a, a close friend who was a classical Arabic scholar. And he suggested the name Marwa because it means the hardest of rocks and the sweetest smelling of flowers. <laughs> and they, they thought those were good attributes to give to a daughter. Um, I think that that still fits in some ways today. <laughs> yeah. So you are a genuinely kind, but also extremely strong person. <laughs> Thank you. I think that's, you know, it's where it comes from. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think I might be the only Marwa Bernstein on the planet. You Which know? is good. Which is good. Have you Googled and tried to find any other Marwa Bernsteins? Well, when I Google... My name, my name, you know, I think I'm the only one who comes up. Yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're an actress? I am an actress. I am um, currently doing um, Oppenheimer. Uh, that's a Rogue Machine production at uh, the Electric Lodge. So they just moved to Venice, um, which is a really, really well-written play, um, obviously about J. Robert Oppenheimer and his journey to making the bomb. It doesn't deal with the later stuff in his life. It's kind of right up to essentially the Trinity test and then Hiroshima, and that's kind of where it ends. Um, but he was a fascinating guy, and the people surrounding him were, were really interesting people. There was a great movie about it. I can't remember the guy who played the lead, but uh, they followed the entire process and, mm. and his negotiations with the U.S. government and how they were able to come up with the idea right. for creating this machine, right. this this device, which was going to do what they wanted it to do, was basically end the war. Right. right. That's why he was doing it, is that he wanted to end all wars. Um, or at least that's what it seems like, given what I've read. He was very left-leaning, um, probably, probably never an actual card-carrying member of the Communist Party, it seems like, but definitely affiliated with and had lots of friends who were fellow travelers. Um, I think in some ways that's how he was able to recruit some of the scientists that were on his team. Totally, yeah. Because a lot of it, you know, Berkeley at the time was all a a lefty commie cesspool. (laughs) It hasn't changed much. (laughs) And it still is. (laughs) Thank God. Um, So, yeah, so he was coming at it from the point of view of if I can do this and end all wars, then it's a good thing. And then, of course, you know. Little did he know. Well, then he had his doubts afterwards and realizes that, you know. It may not have been a good thing. I think that that realization may have happened from the things that I've read and seen that when he saw the device explode, that's Mm -hmm. kind of when it changed his mind, when he maybe realized what might happen, even though it was a big celebration time for them. Right. That it worked. Right. It was also horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it also was the fact that it was being given to the military and, you know, he has a great line in the play where he says, you know, I, something along the lines of he was trying to end all wars, but he just feels like he's left a loaded gun in a playground. Yeah. And when you give that loaded gun to a bully, sometimes they use that loaded gun or at least threaten to use it all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. There's a lot of that going on right now um, with robotics and AI and those types of things. There are people who are on the cutting edge of technologies that are not full. They're doing the same thing that they that they were accused Oppenheimer of doing is of being able to do something without 
really taking into account whether they should do something. Well, and that's, I think, isn't that always the case? You've got these amazing um, innovations and inventions that could save mankind or falling into the wrong hands could devastate us. And I think that's always that line that inventors and scientists have to find, right? Um, is there, is, does the greater good outweigh the possible risk? And I can't imagine how difficult that would be when you want to get your creation done, right? What do you, what do you do? I don't know. I'm, I'm glad I'm not that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just an artist. <laughs> we only get to talk about these things. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're also a classically trained performer. You're like a, uh, and a dancer. I was. I was a professional ballet dancer for 18 years. You were a professional ballet dancer? See, here's things I don't know. <laughs> you didn't know that? Well, I knew you were a ballet dancer, yeah. but I didn't know you were like a pro ballet dancer. I, that was my first career. I danced professionally for 18 years, kind of all over the place. I was... Uh, I, tr- I was a trainee at the Joffrey, and I trained at Chicago City Ballet, and um, I was in New York for a while. I was in a bunch of regional companies, and then I was overseas for a little while, and then back in New York, and then all of a sudden, I found myself in Los Angeles. <laughs> How did that happen? You just, all of a sudden, you closed your eyes and uh, woke up, and you were in LA? Kind of, yeah. No, um, I had, um, you know, as a ballet dancer, your body starts to break down, and um, I had a tear in my hip, a labral tear in my hip and, um, had surgery. And during the recuperation time, I needed to do something to keep myself from going crazy. And so I started doing some acting classes and I had always been the really theatrical dancer who was given the roles that needed acting, you know, Giselle being my favorite one where you get to go crazy and die. Um, (laughs) which is always fun to do. Um, and I, I just fell into this really great acting class with a woman named Rose Eric, who uh, would teach at HB Studios in New York and then also would teach privately. And she and I just kind of, you know, it was like family. And uh, we, she, she kind of understood that I was coming from a place of having been a performer, but also needed to learn how to act. And um, she was just wonderful with that. So I fell in love with that and being able to um, express myself, not with my, not just with my body, but being able to actually, you know, open my mouth and speak on stage for the first time is a completely different thing. So long answer to your question as I started acting, um, and my day job was dancing at the Met in New York while I was trying to get my acting career going. And I ended up working there, um, some, and then, um, quite a bit, and then got a tour to La Jolla Playhouse doing Much Ado About Nothing. So I was there for a couple of months, and at the end of the run, I came to L.A. to um, kind of just see what it was like. My best friend lived here, my brother lives here, and uh, got an agent and just kind of started working and then ended up suddenly living in L.A. Like a month later, I met um, the person who became my husband, and all of a sudden, you know, I was like, oh, I guess I live here now. I'm not going back to New York. <laughs> Roots were planted. Yes. Just sort of um, organically. Yeah, it was an accident. It was, I it mean, was an it, accident. literally, I accidentally moved to LA. Whoops, I got married and moved to LA. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and your husband's pretty cool. Yeah. He's yeah. a good man. He's a good guy. Yeah. 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 He's a good dude, man. You're, you're very, very fortunate. See, that's, it, it's astonishing to me, especially as kind of like a single bachelor type guy that people are able to juggle all of the things that you juggle. I mean, you're like a mom and an actress and this wife and you have a whole ton of responsibilities and you're interested in all kinds of things. I just don't know how you have the time and energy. That's probably why you're kind of tired in the morning. Coffee. Lots of coffee. Lots of coffee. Lots and lots of coffee. Uh, It's interesting how you fell into this. I know that you have always been a performer, but I thought that you had always been acting as well. It's interesting to hear your story that you sort of transitioned from being a dancer. Uh, Yeah, I mean, not everyone can do that. Yeah, and I had I had always played around. Like when I was dancing, I would I would go take some improv classes, or I would be in a in a ballet that might have one little speaking moment or whatever and they would always go hey he, he marwa can do that you know but i was purely a ballet dancer for a good solid you know portion of my life i mean i when i was 3 years old i told my parents i wanted to be a ballerina when i grew up well a lot of little a girls a lot of little do girls that. do that yeah and i got to live that dream so everything after that has i i just think of as a gift so the fact that i've gotten to transition into another 
artistic career and, you know, get to do it is, is a blessing and a gift. And I always like to remember that. Yeah. How's the body holding up now? Pretty good. Yeah. You know, I have my old war wounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have some, uh, persistent things that happen too. It's, yeah. Unfortunately the body, you know, when we're younger, we tend to recover quicker, of course. Right. Um, but there are things that have, you know, I've had some mountain biking accidents and things like that. And actually I jumped off a stage one time when I was doing a play in Hollywood and I sort of jumped off of this balcony and, and did a pratfall and it hurt my shoulder and it's never really fully recovered. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have a, a Swan Lake injury. That's a shoulder we, it, injury. It's the it's the Swan, <laughs> it's the Lake, Swan Lake, Lake injury. You know, because when you do Swan Lake, your your arms have to go really far behind you. And I was doing the Padada, and my partner started to lose me. I started to tip forward. So to save me, he took and pulled my arm up and back, even farther back, even farther back to make sure I didn't fall. Which most likely, you know, tore something or dislocated my shoulder. But you know, I was in my twenties and I was like, well, it's just a shoulder. It's not my ankle or my foot or my knee that I need, you know? And so I kind of never really did a lot with it. And so now all of a sudden you're like, Oh, right. There's that old injury that doesn't go away now. (laughs) (laughs) Just another thing that I have to have in my life. (laughs) I, um, also a big fan of actors like ourselves, and I'm going to include myself in that little circle of people that really have a facility for language. And now I'm putting this picture together of your focus on detail and the way that you approach language. Do you think that there's a connection there? Because I can see as a, as a, as a ballet dancer, you have to be incredibly precise and disciplined. And I've seen some of your performances and some that we've done together in which the language for you has become very precise and disciplined. Um, do you think that there's a connection there? Or I think there's definitely a connection. Ballet is all about details and doing it exactly... Perfect. Right, because you fall over if you don't do it properly, literally. You know. Um, so I definitely am somebody who likes to pay attention to detail. But the other part of that is that um, my dad was a writer and my mom... Um, writes poetry. And so I grew up with a respect for language and especially for writers. And I think it's important that the, the writer wrote it that way for a reason. And I'm definitely of that, you know. Unless you're a screenwriter, then you can just do whatever you, just, you want. Right. You just change the you lines. You just change the lines. No, but, you know, I do. I respect the writer's work. And, um, you know, coming from my New York theater background, like, you don't change a comma without seeing how the writer feels about it. I come it. from the same school. You know, yeah. and so I, I, unless I know that it's something like film and TV where they want you to make it your own, which is great, then I'll do that. Um, but otherwise, I'm going to respect the writer and I'm going to respect what he wrote. And if he or she, ooh, did you hear what I just did? I said he instead of she. Um, so if they wrote an and or a the or a then, you know, that's important. Yeah. They did it for a reason. I always thought of it as an opportunity, too. Yeah. You know, um, went to theater school, and it was drilled into my head that the writer's words are the most important thing that we have as a tool. And if you omit a word, whether it's seemingly not important, um, that it becomes an opportunity. It's it's something that you may not have, or that I may not have noticed in, in, in my first reading of it. And then it's just an opportunity to put another color or to um, add some additional meaning to, uh, to the script um, or, or to the play. Um, but that's, that's from a theater background. You know, we're taught very differently. As film actors, I've noticed that don't have theater training, don't necessarily have that same respect for the writing. They don't. And, and that's a, I'm not a blanket, it's a blanket statement. So I'm not saying that all of them do. Some of them do, but I think it's not drilled into them and it's not, it isn't as important sometimes for film and TV, right? They just want you to make it natural. Yeah. I know that the last movie I did, there was one scene that, that I think I said it slightly differently almost every time we tried it just because well, for some reason, I couldn't get that part in my head properly, which sometimes means that it's not written in a way that works for you, you know, but they didn't mind. They just were like, oh, no, I think we've got it. We can figure it out. You know, one of those will work, basically. They didn't care that it wasn't word perfect. Yeah. Know? The last movie that I did was directed by the writer and he encouraged me to change the lines 
right. however I wanted right. to. He just wanted a naturalistic. Yeah, feel. and I do think that screenwriters feel that way more than you know um, theater writers. I, I think, think that they had to learn to do that though. If we look at some of Hollywood history, when the writers first came to Hollywood, many of them were playwrights, right. and they were horrified when their screenplay was purchased that they no longer had power and over their butchered. words. Yeah, yeah. The, the director would just willy-nilly yeah. take cut and do whatever Can they wanted you mention Clifford Odets? <laughs> <laughs> he would spontaneously combust and or kill people. You're no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I love what we do. It's, I don't know, there's, there's something, you know, a, a lot of people have equated it to some sort of curse trying to make it in the arts and it, it's a tough I don't journey think it is i mean i think it is a tough journey but i think it's something that first of all is extremely important in the world i think that especially when things get dark and nasty you it's it's our responsibility to keep the light going and it's also our responsibility to try and bring people together so hopefully maybe if somebody sees something that you do on stage or in a movie or on tv and it affects them, maybe it will open them up to understanding that there's another point of view or another way to think about things or it's okay to cry when you don't want to or, you know, whatever it is that that allows them to feel something that they wouldn't otherwise feel. And to me, that's one of the most important things about being an artist. That's our job is to bring that into the world, I think. 100%. And, you know, I was talking a little bit about the struggle between art and commerce, um, but being an artist, I think there's quite possibly the most important thing that we have is language and and art yeah. uh, because it reveals what it means to be a human being. Yeah. And it, and it can enlighten those who may not have uh, a, as open a mind as, as other people. And I think it's just extremely important. I was reading a post earlier today of a friend of mine. Her name's Cherry, by the way. And she had struggled from mental illness and addiction and all kinds of things for many, many years. And once she found art and her art is designing clothes it relieved those symptoms it relieved that anxiety that she had had she had an outlet and being able to be of service in a way and and provide beautiful things for other people was something that grounded her in a way that she had never really um, thought possible and there's many many important reasons why we must have art and artists to talk about important issues um, not only on a personal level, but on a worldwide level. And I just flashed back to almost two years ago when we made that little video outside the theater. Mm, oh, right. For the Ghostlight Project. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I get chills a little bit about it because some of the fears that we had envisioned came true. Yeah. Um, that's why I thought it was such an important project. The Ghostlight Project, for anyone who doesn't know, was a, a, a national movement of theater artists or, I guess... Act, well, theater Trump took office, that we were a safe space and that we were accepting of anyone who needed a safe space. And um, it was called the Ghost Light Project because, um, for people who don't know, you know, in, in old theaters in particular, you would always, at the end of the night, you would put um, a single bulb in the center of the stage that was on all night long um, to keep the ghosts company or to keep the ghosts away, depending on who you talk to. And also to make sure that it was, you weren't in a pitch black box, you know, but, um, so there's always a light on, on the stage and there's always, that means there's always light. There's always a place to go. There's always a, a, a haven. There's always a place that you can be safe and the theater needs to be a safe space. And I loved that, you know, all over the country, I mean, huge amounts of people swarmed into Times Square on that day and made videos and, and gave speeches and said, we, we are inclusive, we are a safe space, and we accept anyone. And it was really important to me that we did that even on a small scale, you know, at Pacific Resident Theater, which is, you know, both of our home theaters, um, that they were involved as well, like, you know. And we didn't fully understand how prevalent and important that would become. I mean, there are still, I mean, there are people that are still looking for safe spaces. Right. You know, women, for example, in in some cases, uh, need to have a safe space to be able to talk about women and men of all of all I think everybody I mean you know women women are in the the forefront of the media right Right. now but I I think men are having just as much trouble I mean it's different obviously but it's also because men aren't allowed 
or social norms don't allow men to talk about it as much. And they need to talk about it just as much as everybody else does. But yes, everything that's going on with women right now and the everything with the Kavanaugh hearings and, you know, it makes me want to burn things down. So, <laughs> Well, we could get into a political discussion. Well, since we're kind of there, let me ask you this. I mean, as a longtime Venice resident and a homeowner, uh, there is a number of different initiatives that are coming up on the ballot in California. One of them is this uh, Prop 10 about rent control. Right. And I was just doing a little reading on it. It's going to repeal an old law which allows cities to set their own rent control prices. Um, And it's sort of being touted as a way to help homelessness. And I've talked to a number of real estate developers and people who are renters and everything in between. And there's so many differing opinions about this. Uh, And I don't necessarily think it's going to help homelessness. It's just a step possibly of maybe not adding to it by kicking people out of their places that they've had for a long time. But uh, I don't know if it's going to absolutely make the, the kind of dent that we hope it does, even though it's supported by a wide variety of people to pass this particular proposition. Do you have any opinions about this? Or? You, you know, I, I don't because I, I'm confused, honestly. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people are. They, yeah. Everybody just says it's very complicated. And that's what I'm, I'm like. I don't know which way I'm supposed to go. I don't, I'm not informed enough to know which way I should go on it. And I don't like that, that because then I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You know, yeah, my, I we're just, voters. Right. I just got my, my ballot in the mail yesterday, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, so I need to really do a little bit more research so that I can be doing what I think is right. And it's some of them are f- very complicated, and I'm, I'm not even sure which is the right way to go. Yeah. So, it, it's the one thing that was telling to me is when I looked it up online is that the support for passing this particular proposition has a wide variety of supporters, um, including the Democratic Party and the Housing Coalition and all kinds of people who I would probably align myself with. Right. And on the other side, there's nobody. Interesting. That is supporting voting no. And the only people who are really speaking about out about it are real estate developers. And they have spent $62.5 million in advertising to try and squash this thing. Right. So that to me tells that me tells something. Me something. Right. And I have something quite a bit. Yeah. You know, as long as, as long as there aren't conflicting, like if there are organizations that I support on both sides, that's when it gets yeah. really complicated. It gets complicated. There's, there's a guy in, in Venice who is a big time real estate developer and I've, and I've been trying to get him to do an interview and I, he said, I'll talk to you, but not on the microphone first. He, cause he just kind of wanted to put his toes in the water about what Feel we were going to, yeah, yeah, about what we were going to talk about. He's a long time Venice guy and knows everybody in town and owns a whole lot of this little part of the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he is adamantly against this thing. And he made the case, and he comes from a guy who is very affluent and who's a business mind. But he made the case that we need a million units in in California to be built so that we can put people in housing. And you're not going to encourage people to develop housing by putting restrictions on them. He said they're not going to build these houses unless it, unless the numbers work, and if they're not going to be able to make their profits, they're not going to build here. They're going to go somewhere else. Right, and that's complicated because if they're going to build them, then they're going to want to put people in them who can pay, and then all of a sudden you still have the problem. So you've got a million exactly. new wonderful units, but yeah. nothing for people who can't afford it. Yeah, I mean, he did have this other idea which I thought was very viable. He said that if you really want to talk about homelessness, and because there's a whole other measure that's talking about literally giving apartments to homeless people, right. like building buildings, taxpayer money, and giving them. He's like, you're going to give condos to people, and it's going to cost an exorbitant amount of taxpayer money. Nobody's going to make any money off of it, and you're just going to put people in housing. And he, his, he, anyway, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but his idea was more of a dormitory type of environment in which, you know, he like take away the height limits, build 
a hundred foot tall building that was much more like a dormitory where people would have rooms to stay and then they would have a cafeteria on the bottom where other people could come in and also buy foods and have a cafe and have internet and coffee and things like that. But upstairs would be sort of a dormitory type environment where people could go in and and have it be limited in time and try to help people move up the economic ladder a little bit, kind of like the Midnight Mission does. Right. And that seemed a little bit viable. And he said that he might be able to get people involved on... um, on a donation level or as like a tax break level to put money into building those types of solutions if they had tax breaks or make some sort of incentive so that they could do that or have some of those things be condos like on the top and they could sell them for two or three million dollars and make money on it. So it's interesting. It's it's a very, very complex problem. It is. And it's, uh, you know, Venice in particular is quite fraught with it because of the obviously the homeless problem here. And so... It seems like people, good people who, you know, you usually align with are, are on both sides. Yeah. It's, it's complicated. It very much I don't is. know what the answer is. I don't at all. I mean, I'm not, I'm not um, informed enough to know what the right thing to do is. All I know is that, you know, my empathy meter is <laughs> really high because I don't, I'm like, I, everybody should have a place to live. Yeah. And everyone should have you know, a real place to live, not just a room, not a dormitory. Or a tent over or there tent. at the bus terminal, like the, right. old, the old bus lot that's over there that they're planning on putting like a, a temporary homeless shelter in. Right. Yeah. I know. And people are up in arms about that. But where do people go? I mean, they got to go somewhere. Yeah. It's, um, it's a complex problem. And the reason that I'm trying to talk about it as much is because we got to vote on something. Right. Like in a couple of weeks. Right. So I'm trying to get as many opinions as I can and be as informed as I can right. on this and um, just try and be helpful because I too, and I think that everybody can agree that we don't want this to go on and, no. and, to, and to continue to add t- to the problem. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. So what, uh, how is it being a homeowner in Venice? I mean, you're very blessed. You live in a very, very cool neighborhood you got a great space do you find it difficult in the neighborhood these days are you having any problems with uh you know people breaking into cars or i mean i know some people that have sold their houses recently because they were tired of people defecating on their front Mm. porch yeah or whatever i mean knock on wood you know we haven't had a lot of that i mean i definitely see more homeless people around um but our our little part of the neighborhood hasn't had a lot of issues. I know I would say that I have some neighbors who would disagree because they're up in arms about it. Um, but for the most part, the people I have seen have been very respectful and quiet and just trying to live their life the way that, you know, on, on their, on the streets, (laughs) you know, um, I love Venice because of the grittiness of it. Sometimes, you know, moving here from New York, I'm not looking for Venice to become a suburb. That's not what I'm interested in living in. Um, I So it hasn't really affected us personally. I know there's a lot of people who do. I know there's somebody on our block who wants to bring in private security and have private security at night because they're concerned. Um, and they're, it's all about the homeless. But I don't, I don't think it's about the homeless as much as about the growing disparity uh, between, you know, the classes that's the problem when you've got people who don't have a lot and then the people who seemingly have a lot even though that's not even the case just because you own a house doesn't mean that you have a lot you know everybody's struggling I think in different ways um there are going to be the people who want what other people have and that's not necessarily it's not necessarily fair to blame that only on the homeless I think that people come into neighborhoods from all over the place. That's always been the case. And it, it's more prevalent now because there is such affluence around here or perceived affluence. Right. And there, and there, there is a lot of it. There's no question about it. I mean, with the influx of tech companies and new money that has moved into the neighborhood and also a lot of people who have moved here, uh, it's amazing to me. I, I've met quite a few people that are from other countries that have bought property here just because they can and they're extremely wealthy and they just want to live in the cool place you know there's a bunch of I met a bunch of um, folks from China and they're very young 
right? Uh, like 23, and they own a house, and it's because their dad bought it for them, right? You know, and they just like to hang out in the coffee shops and go surfing, and they just hang out during the right. day. Right, and it was a good investment for their family. Oh, so, absolutely. You know, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, it's totally fine. But it, I think that that does attract a certain element to come in and say, hey, you know, let's see what we can steal, right? You know, and you know, even one of the apartments here got broken into. Um, and uh, people were home, and it was it was a little bit scary. But I, I think that those there's a, there's a whole group of guys that are on Abbott Kinney now. There's a group of these young kids that are on the streets, and they have their dogs, and they've been panhandling a lot. But I think that they're going into these construction areas too because everything is under construction right now, and there's a ton of tools and saws and things that right. are on these construction sites that they go in and take and they try to sell them for drug money or whatever it is. Um, but I think that, you know, the affluence has become an attraction. And I think that happens in a lot of places. Sure. It's part of the, you know, cleaning up a neighborhood and you know, that, that that's good to a point. And then all of a sudden it goes past that point to where it's become a cleaned up neighborhood. And then the people who used to be able to afford to be there can't anymore. And then that becomes a whole other conversation but yet on the other hand isn't it good for things to get cleaned up I don't know you know it's the, the, those are big big ideas and conversations that I'm not sure that I don't know that there's a good answer to any of them especially in this little neighborhood I think you know a lot of people say that the the housing prices and this is true that there's just not a lot of available housing around here that's right. why it, and everybody wants to live in the zip code so it's driven the housing prices the most expensive thing in Venice is a house right you know you can get a building that's not a residential area for fairly reasonably as far as Los Angeles is concerned as long as you don't want to convert it into a residential space if right. it's zoned commercial you can do okay um, it's the it's just the lease that is very very expensive right yeah there was a that same gentleman I talked to he was like you know for, he's been here since the 80s and he seems to think that the policies that are made here in Venice are a microcosm of Los Angeles mm-hmm. and they seem to follow the ideology of this little part of town um, in Los Angeles so it's it's important what we decide to do in this upcoming election here locally right uh, with this because the rest of Los Angeles might follow suit and he said that Los Angeles is kind of a microcosm of the rest of the country there's you know California is a leader in so many things right and it has an influence on the rest of the country in ways that are profound um, so in many ways this uh, these upcoming midterm elections are extremely extremely important and I know you feel the same yeah, way they really are I <laughs> I just hope that people listen. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I hope younger people listen. There's a, a couple of young ladies that have become my neighbors, and one is 20 and the other is 21, and they have, their, they have a place here, and they're roommates. And I've talked to them. They're really, really nice, lovely, lovely people. And I ask them if they're going to vote, and they're like, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I was like, really? Are you going to vote? And yeah. I was like, yeah. Um, and I think that they become, they come from a very affluent family um, in, in Orange County. And uh, so their politics... We might not want them to vote. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. If they come from Orange County. No no disparaging on people from Orange County. No, they're just different politically. Yeah, it's, you a, know? Different, it's a different bubble. Yeah, it is. That's, it's just so fascinating to me how separate and how polarized we've become. It's like there's no more aisle anymore. There's no. no willingness at all to see anybody else's point of view. No, and that's the problem. And I don't think that for the longest time, I don't think we understood how divided we were because it was being kept under the carpet. And so if there's any good that's come out of this, as horrifying as it is, it's that we now see how big the divide is and how deep it is and how much work there is to be done. Now, th- now, this is a question that I've been asking myself a lot lately because there's evidence to show that 70% of the entire population agree on certain things. They agree on health care. They agree on gun control. They agree on a bunch of things. But we can't come together on issues right? because you have to be on one side of the aisle or the other. right? And I think that this divide has been magnified by media, by uh, politicians, because they want a divide, because right. they can use that fear. Well, especially right now with the administration that we have, that's definitely, they want division. Yes. They want to keep it, you know, conquering by separating, right? Yeah. So if people don't come together and figure out how to work out their differences, then no one will come up with a solution. They don't, I don't think they want a solution. I don't either. They want chaos. Yes. Because then it's easier to control. 
Absolutely. Right? Then you can spin it whichever way you want to spin it. And you keep this side frothing and angry and you keep that side frothing and angry. And then great. And then we have nowhere to fucking go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm allowed just to do that on a podcast, yes. right? <laughs> well, my podcast, you can say whatever the fuck you want for sure. Yeah. You know, and the, there's the problem, right? We, If we don't come together, nothing is going to get better. This tactic that we're discussing is something that's fascinating to me because there's obviously an intelligence behind creating this type of environment. And I think that, you know, I I don't mean to point any fingers here, but there's been some really very clear situations in which the Republican side has created a problem and then pointed at the problem and said, see, there's a problem. Right. Yeah. They create something bad and say it's rigged or they've rigged things and then say, see, it's rigged. Right. Because from what some people have said, you know, this is, and I think, you know, a lot of people, this has been on NPR and everywhere else, but you know, they've been building to this point. Oh yeah. For a long, long time. Really, really long time. The extreme right, the religious extreme right has been slowly but surely putting their building blocks. I mean, it's, it's Machiavellian. (laughs) They've been piece by piece years. It's like a patient, really patient game. That's why I really find it difficult to believe when people say that they're stupid because they're just not no they are calculating chess players do not underestimate underestimate any of these people right they are leading people who they want to say are are stupid which i don't think is even fair I, i think being uneducated is not being stupid and when you have been brought up to not on purpose not educate them because you want to keep them the way they are, that's not their fault. That's the fault of the system. That's the fault of whoever it might be, you know, which, which comes back to kind of the whole education thing that we were talking about, because there's a certain part of our governance, I would, I would think, and I don't want it to sound weird, but, you know, who want to keep us uneducated, who want to keep those people in that position. And so they don't care to fix the education system because that would mean that people would start thinking for themselves. So one of the biggest problems is in the education of people. You can't be, if you're ignorant, you can't be expected to make the right choices. If nobody has taught you how to think about that other side. Yeah. It's not their fault. And that's not saying that anybody's stupid. That's saying that people... The education system, when it was originally designed, was... To create obedient workers. Bells and whistles. It was for the industrial age. It was for factory workers. Absolutely. There's a great monologue that George Carlin did, rest in peace, one of my favorite thinkers. And he's like, they just wanted to create obedient workers. I mean, because the owners want obedient workers. They want to be able to manipulate and control and steer the public opinion to their own end. Right. And we haven't, we haven't really revamped the education system since then. No. Because it works. Because we need to keep a quote unquote working class. Yeah. Even though at the same time they chip away at the working class. Right. right. So it's huge they're huge problems. Huge. And how do we fix them if nobody actually wants to fix them? Or not nobody, but a lot of them don't yeah. want it to be fixed. Well, I've talked a lot about this recently, um, with friends of mine and the United States was built by capitalists. And this is just my opinion and things that I've read and uh, documentaries that I've watched, um, you know, about Carnegie and Rockefeller and the Rothschilds. They wanted to have everything governed by white businessmen and for profit. Right. And everything is for profit. And prison system and education and health care. And, you know, we're the only nation left on the planet that values profit over health. Right. You know, we don't, in, in order well, to... Well, maybe s- not the only one, but... Well, there are others. <laughs> I mean, but we do it in a very plain, straight-up way. Right. You know, right. we don't make bones about it's it. It's true. It's like we're, we're almost proud of it. You know, right. pro- everything's for profit, and that's it. Uh, and, and in order to solve these problems, we're going to have to ask people to make less money. Right. They're going to have to make a little bit less money. 
And that's not a good thing for, you know, you can't ask a corporation to make less money because a corporation is designed to do one thing. Because it's and not, yeah, that's what they do. That's what it is. They make they're more They're not money. human. It's a corporation. Exactly. Even though they're given the same, you know, influence and voting rights as an individual in this country, which right. was a major problem. Right. That has to be addressed. Now, money out of politics is the one, is my main issue. Right. They have to take it out of politics. Yeah. And also shorten the electric, election cycle so that it's, in other countries, they have it like for six months and that's it. Right. You have six months, there's debates. You don't start campaigning five years beforehand I mean, or whatever it is. come on. I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> I don't even like seeing Christmas decorations three months before the holiday. Well, it's ridiculous. Right. Exactly. I mean, it, we, it has to be shortened. Money has to be taken out of politics and it really just has to be down to the people. And, you know, um, gerrymandering and... Electoral College and all of those things have really been designed to make it easier for those folks that have put these building blocks in place to be on, on the far right to, to accomplish what they've accomplished. Right. And but you see, I, but I don't think that this is a new problem. Oh, no. You know, I just and that it might be the other silver lining is that hopefully people are starting to understand that this is this has been how things have been done for a really long time and we're just it's just becoming more and more transparent yeah hopefully anyway i think there's a lot going on that they still are keeping you know they, they like it the way it is on both sides i'm not just pointing fingers to the right i mean i think there's a lot of if, if i'm a multinational corporation and i have lobbied for what i want i've got my money's worth right Th those guys who are running the multinational corporations are winning in the biggest of ways. Right. And they, all they want is more money. You know, they, they keep score. There was a great documentary about Warren Buffett. And he was like, you know, he lives a sort of modest life. And they were like, why do you need more money? And he's like, well, that's how I keep score. Right. I'm playing a game. Right. And I want those numbers to be bigger. Because it's all, it's gamblers. They're gamblers. There was, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it, the... There was a movie recently about corruption, lobbyist corruption. Um, Jessica Chastain was in it, and she she played the lobbyist. Right, I don't think and I saw I'm the movie. Blanking on what it was called, but it was amazing. And she played the game, and she, you realize, you know, that she's actually been doing this to uncover all of it the entire time. And it was first of all, it was a stunning movie, and her performance was amazing, and I love her. Um, but it shed light on something that a lot of people, you know, are not talking about or don't want it talked about, you know, and I find it interesting too, by the way, that it didn't do, I don't think it did that well because I don't know that they wanted it to do that well. I mean, not to sound conspiratorial, but you know, you don't want a big movie like that coming out. It's fascinating to me that anyone who shines the light on some of the things that might be going on behind the scenes is labeled a conspiracy theorist. Right. That's the best way to discredit someone. Oh, they're just making noise. Right. They don't know what they're talking about. Right. No, we have your best interests at heart. And it's been proven time and time again that multinational corporations do not have your best interests at heart. The American population as a whole, unless it's making money for the big multinationals, then we don't really have any use for you. And the unfortunate thing is that, and they even know that it's not sustainable. I think that they're just blinded by profits. Sure. It's like a, you know, it's like any bubble, right? Yeah. You're just going to keep going and going and going until it pops. Yeah. And yeah. we, I sound like, you know, a lefty, liberal, bleeding heart guy. And that's what that's I would surprising be called. in Venice. Yeah, exactly. Very well, surprising. I mean, I was born and raised in Northern California and went to school in San Francisco. So it's kind of in my blood. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sort of an art student and an actor from San Francisco. I think that right. I'd probably be left leaning, you know? Right. Um, and I have people in my family who were basically raised the same way who are not. Interesting. Um, I have a couple members of my family. One was in the military, and I get that. And I have another kid that was raised basically the same place that I was, who is just 100% Trump. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I've always found that fascinating. My family, my side of the family are all, we're all on the same page. So I always find it fascinating when someone can drift so far from where you come from. Yeah. Um, and, and how that happens. I always find that really interesting. It's single issues. It's single issues. I think the Republicans wanted this justice, and they were going to do anything to do it. And there's also, there's religious fundamentalists that 
abortion is their thing. Right. And that is and their they're issue. Going, they're and just going to make sure that they vote for whoever is, is you know, pro-life. Period. period. End of story. Doesn't matter what else gets raised to the ground. Like no. that's Yeah. We'll burn everything there. to the ground as long as we can regulate abortion. Right. And it's, it, it's so closed-minded in a way. Right. You know, I, to me, I just don't think that it's, it's worth burning the country to the ground for that issue. You know, especially that one. And I get it. Your religious beliefs. You cannot, I cannot argue argue with people's beliefs. You're going to believe what you believe. And some people are just so adamant about the way they see the world and the way that they've been raised that they cannot or will not allow any other opposing ideas to come in. Right. Period. I mean, we're all that way to an extent, right? I think so. I mean, I... I, I'm open-minded, though. I'm willing to be convinced. At least I hope I am. Sure. I hope I am. But... I also would find myself, like if I'm having a conversation with somebody who's trying to, who's on the extreme right and who's trying to change my mind, I can tell you that it's not go. I mean, well, so I'm... It depends I'm, on the issue for me. It depends me. on the issue for sure. But let's say given, you know, um, pro-choice, like that's never going to, I'm not, my mind is not going to change that everybody has their own right to choose. But that's what they feel too, right? It is, it is beyond their belief that you would ever feel that way. Yeah, but, so, but they're willing to regulate it on a government level, which I think is odd because they're so anti-government. It's very true. I'm just saying that, I mean, everybody, we're all in the same boat of, you know, we think... We think we're doing the we right thing. We think we're doing the right thing. And if we can remember, however, I might personally find it to be completely misguided that that, that these people are coming at it from the standpoint that they think it's right... And then we can try and find a way to talk to each other about it. And I, and, I'm, and I don't know that I could do that. I mean, that's a big deal to me. You, nobody has a right to tell me what to do with my body. I would hope that I would try to be open-minded if somebody said that to me. But at a certain point, I, I won't. I know I'm like, okay, and now you've crossed a line. Yeah. And I'm not willing to hear that from anybody or any place. You know, so, it, so how do we change that then if we're all coming from that place of, of thinking that we're in the right right yeah they say that all politics is local and if you are in uh, born and raised in a place that those beliefs are just ingrained in you and like guns and abortion and those types of things are just ingrained in you it's going to be very difficult to change your mind but as a nation and we are a giant nation not necessarily in population, but in size. So we're, in, there's a separationism that we have here. And I think that that's been cultivated by politics. I think that they want us to feel separated. But, but I think it's, it, it, I think you might even have to go even further back. I mean, that's how we started this yeah. country. On the one hand, you had the Puritans and, you know, the, the religious zealots. And on the other hand, you had the outlaws and the people trying to get away from persecution and the people who were free thinkers and everyone gets dumped on this open land, you know, killing all the people who are already here, notwithstanding, you know, and so we started from that divisiveness from the very beginning because you've got people who want to come here to control things and you've got people who are getting, trying to come here to get away from controlling things. It's just gone on from there, and how how we haven't evolved further than we it's have. Almost, it almost feels like we've devolved. Yeah, as I, I find also very surprising. Like you would think that over this hundreds of years, right, we could have at least evolved past where we started from. But I don't know that we did, and part of that I think comes from the fact that we 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 like that Wild West history, right? We romanticize it we romanticize that lawless wild west and the gun culture and all of that and instead of growing out of it which a lot of other countries have done look at australia you know they've done some amazing regulations on that sort of stuff but they tried to move past that past we keep wanting to stay in that past of you know the gun-toting west and you know the lawlessness of you know don't tread on me and whatever all those other ridiculous yeah, but that's another are. issue that 70 percent of the country is on the same page yeah i mean 70 percent of the country feels that there should be some regulation like we don't want our children getting shot up anymore yeah that's pretty clear uh and it should be pretty obvious that people with mental health issues or felonies or repeated felons who have violent crimes on the record should not be able to get a gun permit and that's just not regulated anymore because you know we have very powerful lobbyists that are paying off our officials right. We we went to a school the other day. Um, my daughter has started uh, being on this adorably 
bad basketball team, all girls basketball team. They have so much fun and really are not. Anyway, <laughs> but we went to another school and to play to basketball? play a, to play a game, and it was a private um, a private Jewish school, and the security at this school was insane. Like they've got a guard station. They've got guards where you have to check in and they take your ID and then they give you a, you know, a, a, a name thing. But they have they have guns. Like police issue type guns. And I saw at least five, I think, four security guards with, you know, they're they are packing at an elementary school. And I kind of asked them about it. And because I was like, well, okay, we, we have security at our school too. We don't have guns. And I started to ask one of the guys, why, why is there so much security at this school? And he kind of said, well, you know, he made a joke about, well, it's a Jewish school and, you know, Jewish temples and schools are under attack. But I don't think that that's necessary because I think they've had that for a long time. And, um, and then he started to say, well, the head of the security used to be a Marine. And so he started to explain that that's why, like, we can make it safer here. And I kind of asked him, yeah, but why do you guys think you need it? And we then had to, you know, we didn't finish that conversation. But it was a very interesting moment of, I understand the need to protect because it's, there's a lot of crazies out there. But then all of a sudden, then you've, you've got all these guys with guns around all the kids. And how is that okay, too? I don't know, you know, I don't know. But it was sobering to see. That was kind of rambling. I'm not sure if I came to a point with that, but well, it's a fascinating observation on things. Right. Um, the people whose children are at that school are probably extremely affluent and are protecting their assets. That's it. You know, who knows? Uh, you know, there might be some very affluent people there that if their child got kidnapped, they'd be, you know, exposed in, in all kinds of ways. Or if, a, you know, they just... But you could say that. This is Los Angeles. You could say that at almost any school. Sure. Yeah, and some of the public schools, too. I mean, yeah. you know, I know some of the, you know, people in the industry, they believe in public school. They're not, they're not sending their kid to a private because school. Because that's how they were brought up. Right. So you could say that anywhere. So it's just interesting. Like, why do they choose versus some of the other schools to have that level of security? You know? I don't know. It's a strange world we're living in. I mean, over and over again, I hear people talking about the fact that they haven't seen in all of our history the things that are happening now, um, politically and socially. Uh, and like you said, we're kind of not evolving. As a matter of fact, we're devolving. The divides have gotten even broader. And, and unfortunately, it feels like the solutions are becoming harder and harder, even though they seem fairly obvious right they're easy except that that would require people to reach as you said reach across the aisle which nobody wants to do right now and that's just in this administration i mean there used to be an aisle in in the previous administration people were okay with bonding together on certain issues right like we reached across the aisle we reached a consensus you know we crossed party lines and we got something done and they were proud of that now there's no aisle right there's a wall and they do not and cannot because it would be political suicide for a Republican to reach across the aisle to a liberal and vice versa. Look at what they did to um, Flake, right? Wasn't it Flake? Yeah. Who was on the fence? Yeah. Or at least he was seeming on the fence. And I mean, and then so everyone was so excited when he was like, well, at least I'll think about it. Right. And then lambasted him when he didn't. But what was going to happen to him? If he did, I mean, there was, well, you know, there was, way. he was on his way out anyway, yeah, right? He was going right. to retire. And right. There was a great art. They did an NPR piece on him and he was walking around New York. Right. And he had, I heard that. Yeah. yeah he had no security or anything. And people were like, New York loves you. And right. thank you. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And now, now he's uh, dead to them again, yeah, you know, like ostracized, but he's out of politics now anyway. Um, but it, it just, we have to be able to reach across the aisle on some things in order to solve these problems. And you would think that everybody would want to solve some of these basic issues. Right. Um, like healthcare, for example. And I, I know that we're coming up to like an hour here and I know that you have to leave. But just quickly, just because I started this sentence, there are two things that I want Democrats to stop saying. And one of them is free. Mm -hmm. Like free healthcare. Stop saying that. That's just my own opinion because nothing is free and people don't understand free. Even my mom, who is left-leaning and wants everybody to be taken care of, says there's no free health care. 
don't stop saying free. Just say that but, it's included. But they can't, you know, they can't stop <clears throat> saying free because otherwise you'd have to say socialized medicine and socialized say, medicine no, no, no. is a dirty this word. This is the other thing. Two things, okay? First, stop saying free. Start saying included with your taxes. That's what I think they should say. And then socialism should never be uttered again by a Democrat. Right. You can have those policies. You can do the same thing. Just stop because calling Because socialism it is a dirty word. Even though it is probably the most... Um, level-headed idea that mankind has ever come up with. Great. Right? Let's have that let's, idea. Let's just call it something right, else. Right, because it's become such a flashpoint. You can't use that word anymore. Absolutely. Same thing with liberal. I mean, the Republicans will use those words to rally the people that are in their base. Because, you know, you and I are liberal social socialist commies, right? I mean, that's <laughs> if they, that's what they're going to call us. I have, a, I have a very close friend who is a conservative-leaning guy. <clears throat> On social issues, he's completely liberal. But on some things, I, I a was... A fiscal conservative. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was in Austin, Texas over the weekend, and I got to see Robert Reich speak in person. You know Robert Reich? Mm-hmm. Very smart guy. Um, used to be in the Clinton administration. He was the economic advisor right. for him. He's a very liberal, left-leaning guy. He teaches at Berkeley, economics at Berkeley. And he called him a communist. He's like, he's this far away from being a communist. And I was like, what do you, how do you say that? He's like, well, all the socialism stuff. And I was like... You don't understand. But but that goes all the way back to like the, the play and Oppenheimer and everything that they were going through and the and the commie the commie scare, right? The red scare and then leading into McCarthyism. Like we haven't recovered from all of that. And that's where all that started. And right? it also feels like it's gotten worse. Right. And so that's why, you know, socialism is still a dirty word because we haven't gotten over the the, the people who were pro McCarthyism are still there. <laughs> They've just gone underground a little bit because it's no longer, they're not, they weren't in power. Right. So it was, it wasn't in vogue to be that way, but it's, it's, it's never, I don't know that it's ever really gone away from all of that. Um, which is why you're right. Like they need to stop using the, the word socialist stop or socialized think, anything. Yeah. The, the younger generation I think is, is, resonating or that word is resonating with them. I think that they're, they're getting on board with, um, the democratic socialist. Right. Well, why wouldn't you, when you look at someplace like Sweden, which is probably the best country on the planet right now, (laughs) as far as coming together and doing the right thing for humans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, those are socialist countries and they're proud of it and they don't define the word the same way that we no we do. don't they just are actually meaning it the way it it literally means which yeah. is taking care of your society Yeah, but we have right? to stop using the word here i yeah. mean we can have those ideas and we can implement those policies but we just got to stop saying it i think that as democrats we just got to stop saying it because there are a lot of independent voters out there that are still taken aback by that word and and the word free in america is a bad word but see that also then goes back around to education right because if you actually knew the philosophies behind socialism instead of it just being a dirty catchword, then you would go, oh, these are all good things, right? And behind any of them, actually. I mean, behind the socialism, communism, capitalism, there are all really, really good ideas on paper. It's just that they become, well, communism and capitalism, I wouldn't say socialism so much, have become corrupted because of human... Yeah. Greed and unregulated else. capitalism capitalism is a bad thing right it has to be regulated and you know regimented communism is a bad thing <laughs> exactly you know so it's like if you go meet in the middle somewhere being a libra i'm like can we all just meet in the middle <laughs> let's all go sit down and have coffee <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about things shall we let's, let's talk about things and then all hug <laughs> yeah. oh man well i'm glad we had this discussion marwa um I think that it's important to keep talking about things. Sure. It's part of the reason, and I've said this before on this show, it's like I I wanted to do this for a long time just so that I could have extended conversations with people about all kinds of things Uh, because I think that we're we're fascinating. Human beings are fascinating. And I think that in big issues like this just need to continue to be talked about so that we can... Maybe anybody who hears this might... Rethink. Right. Just, just think right. about what they are and well, who that's, they are. But that's all we... Everybody just needs to start thinking again. Yeah. And not reacting. Thinking instead of reacting. Yeah. Yeah. Try to make it's, an informed, rational decision. And which, do. you know, gets it back to the acting, you know, since we're both actors of like, if you're in a scene and you're just trying to wait for your lines and you're not listening, then you're not going to... It's not going to work, right? No. And that's exactly what we're all doing right now. 
Yeah. So be better actors. Be better actors. (laughs) Actors have the keys to everything. (laughs) Be active listeners. (laughs) I can't tell you how much I appreciate you, Marwa. And having an opportunity to sit down and talk with you is really cool. It's fun. Yeah, it's super fun. Yeah, thank um, you for inviting me to do this. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And Oppenheimer is running. Oppenheimer is running. We are um, up and running until December 30th. Awesome. At, yeah. the Electric At the Electric Lodge, Lodge here in Venice. Yep. And I think that Rogue Machine is a great addition to the neighborhood. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's great having another theater company in town. I mean, my first love will always be Pacific Resident Theater because that's my, it's, that's been my artistic home. But Rogue Machine is just as wonderful. And, you know, I think it can only do good things for Venice to have two such um, great, intelligent, artistic um, organizations right here in our hometown. So come out and see everything that you can at Rug Machine and everything that you can at Pacific Resident Theater. Amen to that. I will definitely be there. Mauro Bernstein, it's truly my pleasure to have you here. Thanks again for doing this. Thank you, and thanks for the coffee. You bet. I just want to say thank you once again to Marwa for taking the time to speak with us today. I really enjoyed having her here, and I hope you enjoyed listening. The Rogue Machine production of Oppenheimer at the Electric Lodge Theater is running through December 30th. It's uh, supposed to be a great show. I'm definitely going to go check it out. If you'd like to go see Marwa and the rest of the amazing cast, check it out. You can go to roguemachinetheater.com or Electric Lodge com online get your tickets they also have some pay what you can nights um so take advantage of that now uh just a couple other reminders if you'd like to follow us on instagram you can do that at the venice voice podcast we're also on twitter uh and also i'd love to hear from you if you have any questions if you'd like to add anything if you'd like to tell me that i am crazy because of my political views that i've <laughs> discussed on this show send me a note at ron at venicevoice.com and I will reply online and uh, or on the show. So any feedback you can give, I'd really appreciate it. We'll be back again next week with another interesting guest from this little corner of the planet called Venice, California. Until then, you have a great week.